Hello and welcome everyone to the talk, Artul Goes East, Turkey Rising in South Asia, jointly hosted by the Middle East Institute and the Institute for South Asian Studies, both located here at the National University of Singapore. My name is Amin Lutfi, and I'm a research fellow at the MEI, and I will be your moderator for what promises to be an exciting discussion on the ever-evolving ties between Turkey and three South Asian countries with large Muslim populations, namely India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. The pairing of these two regions on the surface seems odd because the Turkey and South Asia, if one looks at a map, appear to be disconnected by the arduous Central Asian terrains on one side and Persia on the other. But in the longer historical arc, fates of the two regions have long been interconnected through the movement of people, ideas, and empires. Of late, we have seen this neo-Ottomanist aspirations of you know, the AKP-led Turkish government uh, instrumentalize some of these shared legacies for their own expansionist aspirations and geopolitical goals. Through cultural exports such as the soap opera based on the little known Central Asian tribal chief and progenitor of the Ottoman lineage, Arturul Ghazi, who sort of happens to be in the title of the talk today, Turkey is slowly expanding its soft power eastwards and perhaps filling a gap left by the reorientation of Salafi influences from the Persian Gulf. But is this really only a one-way street? To what political ends might South Asian states be interested in mobilizing these different episodes from this shared history for their own political ends? What uncertainties do this, this, this new uh, relations or the emerging relations hold for the region, specifically considering what has been going on in Afghanistan and sort of the uncertainties around that area. How will these uh, ties impact some of the hot issues within South Asia, namely Kashmir or the Rohingya crisis? Moreover, beyond geopolitics, how are these ties going to remake the cultural dynamics and also the political uh, sort of balances internally within both Turkey and the South Asian states. It is to address some of these questions and shed light on the contemporary Turkey-South Asia relationships in uh, perspective or in light of the, the past, we have our four esteemed speakers today who would like to cordially invite and welcome to, to, uh, welcome to the, this, this talk jointly hosted by MEI and ISAF. So thank you so much for joining us today. It gives me great pleasure to briefly introduce the four speakers and I won't take much time in this. Uh, we, we will start the discussion with, uh, with Dr. Gurul Baba, who's an associate professor in the political uh, science faculty department of international relations at the Social Science University of Ankara. Uh, from Turkey, we then turn to Pakistan with Dr. Farooq Suleria, who's an assistant professor at the Beacon House National University in Lahore and from Bangladesh, thirdly we go to, uh, from Pakistan, thirdly we go to Bangladesh with Dr. Iftikhar Ahmed Chaudhary, an honorary fellow at the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore and a longtime principal research fellow at ISAS. Last but not the least, we end with Dr. Umar, Umar Anas from uh, Ankara Yildirim Biazit University to talk about India's relationship with Turkey. Um, 
each speaker will have about 15 minutes uh, to uh, present, to sort of lay out their talk and present their, uh, to, to lay out this presentation. At the end of those, uh, sort of when we reach around uh, 13 minutes or when there's a few minutes left, you'd receive a message from the events team. So just to the speakers, note to the speakers, just keep an eye out for that uh, as a reminder. Uh, so we will keep to that strict 15 minutes limit. And at the end of the talk, we'll have about 45 minutes that for discussions and, and, and question and answers. So uh, without uh, much further ado, uh, let me invite Dr. Gurul Baba to unmute himself and start this presentation. So welcome Dr. Gurul Baba. Thank you, Amim, uh, Dr. Litvi. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Um, when I received the invitation uh, from your institution, I wasn't actually quite sure how to uh, frame uh, Turkey's um, outlook towards South Asia because Turkey has a quite a big widespread outlook towards the whole Asia Pacific region. So I started uh, reading the literature or actually in other words, rereading the literature. What I saw, there are like two cliches uh, in the literature regarding Turkey's opening to Asia. There are two concepts that the literature and the policy actions and the policy framework of Turkey uh, has been going through. The, the two cliche uh, concepts are alternatives and opportunities. Turkey's foreign policy uh, framework or opening uh, to Asia has been rolling over these two concepts, alternatives alternative to the Western Alliance, alternative to the previous allegiances, and also the opportunities that Asia Pacific region has been offering to like proactive middle powers like Turkey. Then I said these cliche terms would not really give a theoretical framework about, the, about Turkey's opening to South Asia. And so I uh, looked for another conceptual framework, which I added to the title, which is geopolitics, versus geoculture versus geoeconomics. And I think uh, Turkey's uh, foreign policy, Turkey's opening to South Asia and the, and the relations that it has been managing in the region uh, has been now can be formulated within this versus versus structure. When I say geopolitics, I mean security, strength, conflicts, and coalitions. When I say geoculture, it's like prestige, exchange, cultural influence, similarity, or difference in religious faiths. And when I say geoeconomics, I mean growth, development, trade, uh, investment, dependence. So I think today uh, the talk and especially the discussions are going to uh, revolve around these, around these terms. All these three concepts, geopolitics, geoculture, and geoeconomics. Uh, all these three concepts in justice and development parties, which is going to be my main pillar of explaining uh, Turkey's relations with South Asia, are determined. All these three uh, concepts are determined by the domestic political needs of the JDP, which is the Justice and Development Party. Uh, that's how I'm gonna use it so far. Uh, and foreign policy as diplomacy uh, comes second in GDP's domestic political needs, especially regarding its opening to South Asia. Foreign policies, economic and commercial segments are more predominant in GDP's opening to the region. Foreign policies, cultural elements, particularly the Islamic cultural elements do serve 
GDP, domestic policy, sometimes even more than the economic side of things. So geopolitics versus geoculture versus geoeconomics uh, framework tells us the geoculture has a significantly predominant role in Turkey's opening to the region. Although the engine sounds like geoeconomics, even today in this talks, uh, title VC Arturo, which is a part of Turkey's geoculture, you named it as the soft power. Now, it's a bit like Eckhart Tolle's argument of the primacy of domestic politics, and that's how we see uh, the JDP uh, has been organizing its policymaking and policy applications in the region. Now, where do we actually see the predominance of geoculture? Well, we see it in President Erdogan's speeches, like during a ceremony at the centenary of the death of Ottoman Sultan Abdulhamid II, Erdogan said that the Republic of Turkey is a continuation of the Ottomans. Of course, the borders have changed, forms of government have changed, but the essence is the same. Seoul is the same, and even many institutions are the same. This uh, emphasis uh, underlined the importance of geoculture in Turkey's relations with the region, which we uh, particularly see in Turkey's relations with Pakistan. And so what it does is Erdogan has been reinventing himself as a, some sort of a protector of the, of the Muslims or some sort of a new champion of Islamism. In addition to this geocultural element, which is more like the Islamist uh, understanding of Erdogan's foreign policy, we actually have a more formidable underpinning of Erdogan's foreign policy, which is pragmatism. So another important element regarding Turkey's relations with Asia, which, we, which can be uh, located in the geoeconomic side of things, is Erdogan has been trying to compartmentalize issues by pushing political and strategic clashes to the back carriages of the relations and uses economic and financial relations as the steam engine. So Erdogan administration, uh, this type of a, a geoeconomic and geocultural understanding and paradigm of relations with the region uh, makes Erdogan and, uh, administration sometimes misread the regional parameters and the balances of power. In other words, the geopolitics of the region. Since the hot money flow to Turkey is the main element uh, of this opening to the region, as I said, that would lead to, uh, Erdogan administration to misread the geopolitics of the region. All right. So, this type of a geocultural and geoeconomic understanding and motivation of Turkey's relations with Asia is also caused by the growing anti-Western tilted focus in the Turkish foreign policy since especially 2007. There are many reasons. If I need to touch upon some of them is Turkey's anti-Westernism, the opportunities uh, coming from the region for the uh, like middle powers like Turkey, Relations with the EU pushing Turkey to the East, relations with the US strained, particularly in the last decade, and Turkey's proactivism, which is sometimes causing it to punch about its weight. Regarding the policy initiatives, we have three policy, policy initiatives, which I think the other uh, speakers are going to talk about. Uh, and these three initiatives, one of them is in nine, uh, 2019 called the Asia and New Initiative, which is 
which was proposed by the Turkish Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, with the motivation of the Turkish presidency. I was a, a, a part of one of their meetings uh, talking about how can we actually uh, increase uh, our relations with the region in general Asia and Pacific. There were some very uh, flashy words used during the, during the meeting. And we also hear very similar flashy words from Nirvana Drama, who is the head person of that initiative, uh, the ambassador uh, Nirvana Drama, talking about the systematic and a comprehensive focus to access the region. The initiative, uh, the 2019 initiative involves soft power assets, conflict resolution methods, economic tools, and defense industry relations with the region. As you can see, the main motivation is the geoeconomics, although it is, again, uh, a very significant focus in ambassador dramas and during the meetings of the 2019 initiative that Turkey has always been an Asian country. It has really strong geocultural links with the region. Turkey's roots extend into Asia and these roots are cultural and historical. As you can see, there is a bit of an amalgamation between geoeconomics and also geoculture in all these uh, type of you know, statements, official statements of the Turkish authorities. The second uh, initiative, uh, regarding Turkey's opening to the region is the Middle Corridor project. It's like an interconnectivity project, uh, like the Chinese Belt of Road. And a few uh, parts of the literature talks about the compatibility of Turkey's Middle Corridor project with Chinese Belt of Road, which aims to create a connectivity between the East-West Corridor and North-South Corridor. And tries to link the Turkish territory to Central Asia via Transcaucasia and aims to, as I said, to integrate it with the uh, Chinese Belt and Road, which would extend that interconnectivity to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and China. Um, another initiative is uh, TASAMS initiative, which is a Turkish presidency supported think tank. It's, it could be named as the third initiative. Also, it's not very official, but it underlines the importance of links or building up ties uh, with, these, with South Asia, uh, which obviously had a, a significant uh, cultural uh, background in the, in the Ottoman period or the War of Independence or even the Republican era in the Turkey geocultural realm. And that's what TASAM also underlined. And in, in TASAM's initiative, as I said, it's some sort of a semi-official initiative. It underlines the field of tourism, trade fairs, trade days, and also increasing the Turkish exports to the region in order to reduce the imbalance in the, in, regarding the trade deficit and also some counter-terrorism uh, cooperation uh, between Turkey and the regional countries. So as you see, Turkey's foreign affairs with South Asia, all these initiatives uh, has some multiple tracks, not only the diplomatic channels that Turkey would like to use, but also commercial organizations and firms folk or wrapped up in a, in a cultural framework as we label today's call with Arturo. Um, let me go a little bit further 
and say that the expectation of the Turkish current uh, administration, the JDP administration, is that these organizations, the commercial organizations, the firms, which is like the second track diplomatic elements, should be more influential than the official state channels, i.e. the diplomatic uh, channels. Um, let me just touch upon in like a few uh, minutes before I finish my talk, Turkey's relations with, it, uh, with South uh, Asian countries. Afghanistan is possibly today's hot topic. It is both a showground and a minefield for Turkey to show its importance to both Western, uh, let's say, block and Eastern, let's say, block. Uh, to show its importance in the sense that Turkey is, is still a very important asset for both blocks. And we may, you may also know, uh, Turkey's most significant foreign policy asset is its armed forces, and which the JDP administration do not hesitate to use, as we saw in Syria. And Turkey's position in Afghanistan was initiated with this asset. Uh, the thing is, Afghanistan uh, policy uh, of Erdogan administration is a bit like a reaction to its strain in the in Turkish-US relations in order to show the US how important that is. I'm not gonna go any further because I've got the notification that I've had like three minutes. Uh, we may talk about this later. And relations with India, on the other hand, is very well known that the relations with India has been overshadowed by Turkey's geocultural relations with uh, with Pakistan. So Turkey sees India from Pakistan's lenses, from the geocultural perspective, but from geoeconomics perspective, the new ambassador, Franz Sunal, Turkish new ambassador, has been telling that we don't need to reset our relations. We can still compartmentalize it and we can develop our trade. That's how Turkey sees its relations with, with India. Pakistan obviously has been developing especially from this geocultural Islamic sense of reading uh, relations, especially with the defense ties, uh, Pakistan and Turkey's relations within that realm about the defense time is quite formidable. And Bangladesh is like some sort of a Turkey's footprint in South Asia. It's the second largest trade partner in the region after India with one billion uh, of a trade volume. And again, with Bangladesh, Turkey is using its very important asset, the defense industry and the armed forces in order to develop its relations with Bangladesh. And they are sort of like supporting each other. Before I wrap things up, uh, let me just uh, re-underline uh, my main conceptual framework that Turkey's relations with the region has been heavily focused on the geocultural affinities and also uh, pushed by Turkey's needs in geoeconomics in order to bring more uh, hot money into the Turkish economy, which causes the Turkish administration to misread and even cross the uh, geopolitical realities and the balance of power in the region, particularly regarding the India-Pakistan relations has been Turkey tilted towards Pakistan uh, in the Kashmir uh, issue. It was a big topic. I tried to uh, keep it as succinct, as concise as possible. So let's just take it as a conceptual framework for the rest of the talk. Thanks for that. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Baba. I mean, you had a very difficult task of laying out 
you know, there's this very complicated geography uh, or sort of, you know, these, these three pronged relations between Turkey and India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. So, I mean, you've given us an, a very clear and succinct framework that hopefully we can uh, sort of further build on and elaborate in, in, the, in the three remaining talks. Uh, with that, I wanna invite uh, Dr. Farooq Soleria to unmute himself and turn on his camera and, um, uh, and start his presentation. Dr. Soleria. Dr. Soleria, uh, might if uh, can you hear me? If not, we can maybe, uh, if possible, we can we can get in touch with him, and uh, we can we can uh, if 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 we can skip box and come back to it later. Uh, uh, Dr. Iftikhar Chaudhary, uh, if you are present, would you mind uh, going in second? Yes, I, I seem to have uh, lost the, uh, the, the, the camera, good heavens. Okay, thank you very much. And it's, it's a great pleasure to be, to be uh, with you. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I, my perspective will be broadly historical. Uh, I'll do so in broad brushes. Uh, it's a difficult topic, uh, Turkey, South Asia, a huge subject. But let me begin with the concept of soft power. Uh, soft power has always existed as a factor in. Hello. Can you hear me? As, yes, as we a, can hear you. Okay. So, so, uh, sorry, just uh, yeah, we can hear you. We can hear you. I think uh, Dr. Farooq Suleria is here. Yeah, sorry, uh, Dr. Suleria, uh, we, we couldn't get in touch with, so we'll we'll, we'll go to you next after after uh, Dr. Chaudhary. Okay, uh, so uh, the. Uh, as a concept, soft power from time to uh, from time immemorial has played a role in in uh, international relations. Uh, this was uh, conceptualized as a foreign policy tool by Professor Joseph Nye. He introduced the term, as we now understand it, in his writings in the 1980s and 90s, fully expanding its connotation in his 2004 book, Soft Power. The means to succeed in international politics, that's what he called it in his book. To him, basically, it implied the capacity of a state actor to get others to behave in a desired fashion without resorting to hard power or military force. A perfect example of this is contemporary times would be the use of the purpose of the film or series, Durilish uh, Erturul uh, by Turkey, which is, of course, a, a, as you have heard, a historical fiction based in the 13th century. Now, uh, uh, the storyline is one of a near epic struggle and journey of the Turkic nation, a uh, Turkish version in many ways of Homer's uh, 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 Iliad and Odyssey, perhaps. Uh, Urturul uh, represents the sensibilities of the Trojan prince Hector and the valor of the Greek hero Achilles all rolled into one. It conjures up nostalgic memories of a glorious and romantic past of the ethnic and religious halcyon days of the Turkish uh, uh, people. The empire's last sultan, uh, Abdul Majid, was removed by the Turks themselves under uh, Mustafa Kemal Pasha Tatar, father of the nation. By then, the Ottoman Empire had declined to the point of having 
uh, earned the cognomen of the sick man of Europe. For Kamal Pasha, the Ottoman Caliphate had outlived his, its utility, and he was persuaded that it needed to be supplanted by a nationalist, modern, and secular polity in a bid to anchor itself more to modern European ethos. Now, these values of Kamal Pasha and the, of the young Turk revolutionaries were preponderant in Turkey, almost till the coming to power of the current president, Recep Erdogan. While the shift towards Islam occurred almost as a slow and inexorable process, the new post-Kamalist Islamic-oriented leadership saw merit in hearkening back to the past and tapping history to advance Turkey's global projections uh, as an Islamic power. Now, the earlier developments, the, uh, the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the young Turks was having a considerable impact on the global Muslim community, including the Indian Muslims of the North, the Northwest, and Bengal in the subcontinent. Now, Muslim leaders like the Ali brothers, Muhammad Ali and Shaukat Ali, the Aga Khan in Bombay, and said Amir Ali in Bengal, initiated what has been called the Khilafat movement, uh, which Mr. M.K. Gandhi sought to incorporate into India's freedom struggle. The dedication with which Indian Muslims espoused the cause of the caliphate, which the Turks themselves had rejected, was puzzling. It was obviously a yearning for the heyday of Islam as perceived by them, even though the Turks themselves seemed to have other views. These Indian leaders petitioned Kemal Pasha to restore the Sultan, even assumed the throne himself, but the pleas went unheeded. In fact, the poet uh, Samam al uh, went so far as to suggest a legislative uh, caliphate, but to no avail. The historian Asi Majumdar has underscored that by endorsing extraterritorial allegiance of an issue Mr. Gandhi believed to be vital to the Muslims, he was subscribing to the view that they, that is the Muslims, even though they lived in India, were a separate nation. Interestingly, Mr. Muhammad Ali Jinnah and some other uh, secular Muslim leaders were not that supportive and instead showed admiration for Kamal Pasha's leadership. In Calcutta, the Bengali Muslim poet Kazi Nazrul Islam sang paeans of praise to Kamal Pasha uh, and to the young Turks, uh, young Turks like uh, Anwar, uh, Anwar Bey. Uh, it was a bit like a Bengali version of soft power, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, directed at Turkey's new nationalist leaders. The point is, Indian Muslims, including the forebears of the current Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, resonated with the two distinct traits of Turkish uh, influence, the imperial and the modern. By India's partition in 1947, Turkey was seen as a beacon of secular Islam, the values with which subcontinental Muslims at that point in time wanted to shape their lives. Politically, post-India partition, Turkey was an ally of the territories which today constitute Pakistan and Bangladesh. As sovereign nations, their politics, instead of being confined to the subcontinent, were now being played out on a global matrix during the US-Soviet rivalry of the Cold War period. Now, those days, the influence of impoverished Arab nations on South Asian Muslims was minimal. Intellectually, intellectual uh, interactions were 
almost uh, non-existent. That it was thought. I mean, the Economist had said uh, magazine that no Arab Gulf Arab reads a book for fun. Of course, that's not true of uh, Levant, uh, which was different, uh, uh, which gave birth to the ilk of uh, say Edward Said and Khalil Gibran. But somehow the Indian Muslim culture was imbued more with Persian, that is Farsi, and Turkic influence rather than Arabic, whether during the Mamluk Sultanate or Mughal Imperial era. Turkey and Iran had opted for the West in the Cold War lineup, opposed to the Soviet bloc or the non-aligned movement. Note the Central Treaty Organization, CENTO, and the Regional Cooperation for Development, which is the RCD, groupings of which Turkey, Iran, and Pakistan were most enthusiastic members. In fact, then Pakistan uh, uh, Prime Minister, H.S. Uh, Sarwardi, once Premier of, uh, of Undivided Bengal, mocked the NAM stating that zero plus zero equals zero. In then East Pakistan, the two major foreign dignitaries to have ever visited Dhaka, then a provincial capital, and I recall seeing them as a, as a cheering schoolboy lined up on the roadside were Emperor Raza Shah Pahlavi of Iran and Prime Minister Adnan Menderes of Turkey, who, as you know, was later overthrown and executed following a coup. The elites in Karachi, Lahore, and Dhaka displayed secular traits in their behavior pattern. And importantly, the army, the army in Pakistan was intensely Kemalist, secular to the bootstrap, Field Marshal Ayub Khan as a case in point. The same values appear to have percolated to the Bangladesh army after the nascence of the new republic in 1971, evidenced in its commander-in-chief, uh, General Emir Usmani. Now, when the pendulum swung back in Turkey and the authorities turned to Islam, there was also great empathy in Pakistan and Bangladesh. True, Arab nations by now were wealthy. That became a source of both material and spiritual nourishment through also employment of vast numbers of South Asian Muslim workers. The Saudi king was deeply respected as a keeper of the two holiest shrines of Islam. Yet, some Arab leaders were being viewed as playing second fiddle to the Western powers whose conflict with the Muslim world and support for Israel uh, eroded, had eroded their popularity and dented public acceptance in this region. Now, to the man in the street in, among many South Asian Muslims, Erdogan seemed to stand out as a hero. And Ankara made full use of the movie series at the world to, uh, to stir up public spirits. The Turkish government launched a state endorsed a vigorous promotion of Islamic revivalism. However, some Turkish intellectuals like the writer Orhan Pamuk and some moderates uh, in, in, in the Turkish society opposed it as they did the remosking re of uh, Aya uh, Sofia, for instance. But by and large, South Asian Muslims felt inspired by Ituru, just as the Indian television serial Ramayana had influenced the burgeoning Hindu nationalism in some political quarters. Prime Minister Imran Khan uh, publicly praised the movie, describing the hero as Ghazi uh, or victor in war and recommended it to the Pakistanis. It was also translated in Urdu. And Bangladesh, the series also drew a large audience as well. There are those who believe that it serves the purpose of diverting the populace away 
from the stricter Wahhabi variant of Gulf Arab Islam towards a more tolerant Sunni belief system. As a matter of fact, it is also true of countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, and even the Maldives. Uh, 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 there is a, these point to a sort of incipient bonding among non-Arab Muslim nations on the global scene at this point in time. Now in Bangladesh, following Turkey's recognition of, Bangladesh, of the country in 74, close co co collaboration continued through the period of all governments, both in Bangladesh and Turkey. I myself had the very close rapport with my Turkish counterpart, Foreign Minister Ali Baba Chan. In New York for years, Bangladesh mission to the United Nations occupied two floors of the Turkish representation which contributed to the close ties in the multilateral fora between us. However, there was a slight bump in the relationship and Ankara criticized the sentences passed during war criminal trials in the early years of the Wami League-led government of Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina. But in 2016, Sheikh Hasina issued a, a statement in strong support of President Erdogan after the failed coup against him. In return, President Erdogan had lent the strongest possible endorsement of Bangladesh on the Rohingya refugee crisis, both at the United Nations and at the Organization of Islamic Countries. The First Lady of Turkey visited the refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar to demonstrate her and her people's solidarity with the Rohingyas. Trade uh, has received uh, a Philip, uh, Dr. Baba mentioned, uh, figure of a billion, I understand they're uh, uh, trying to hit two billion. Not that it is, that is the most significant factor in the relationship. Importantly, uh, a new government-to-government uh, -government defense memorandum of understanding was signed between the two countries on 21st June 2021, uh, following the visit to Ankara of the new Bangladesh Army Chief of Staff. Now, this will help Bangladesh divert, uh, diversify sources of military procurement. And Turkey, being a NATO country, would be particularly well, uh, uh, a welcome supplier of modern weaponry. For a variety of complex reasons, thus, Turkey is an emergent, significant partner for Bangladesh. Now, this relationship in Turkey and Bangladesh provides a genuine sense of comfort to Bangladeshis, and the government is quite happy to go along. Turkey and Bangladesh seem to, uh, 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 Turkey for Bangladesh seems to satisfy the requirements of both nostalgia and necessity. These cur uh, current cross-regional re uh, relations are being carried out uh, on the backdrop of rising tensions between two superpowers, the older ones, United States and the rising China. The world seems sadly poised to enter the phase of the Cold War II. Now, these are being exacerbated by alliance buildings by the rivals, increasing the possibilities of wider conflict of both kinetic or non-kinetic varieties. Bangladesh may not be a key protagonist, but given its positive economic and sociopolitical indices, it is, noteworthy, it is a noteworthy international actor. Its foreign policy primarily has a development orientation with a sharp preference for conflict avoidance. As a plethora of security alliances appear to be emerging in and around the region, 
this is not necessarily an easy maneuver for Bangladesh. Now, in regional organizations in South Asia, SAAD appears to be failing due to the Indo-Pakistan rivalry. Multilateralism and plurilateralism have always been important platforms for Bangladesh for the conduct of its foreign policy on an international stage. Now, as ties with Turkey widen and deepen, a forum of potential, uh, potential importance to Bangladesh, with increasing, uh, uh, which increasingly comes to the fore, is developing eight. It's an economic grouping, as you're aware, comprising the eight largest Muslim-majority countries, uh, which is headquartered in Istanbul. It may be time to resuscitate it. Like any country, Bangladesh needs friends from among key global actors. Turkey satisfies the bill in diverse ways. Navigating through the rough waters of current international politics will doubtless be a challenge for Dhaka, but I believe that Bangladesh diplomacy has adequate intellectual resources to pick up the gauntlet. So, Edgar in spirit and influence, if not in body, has crossed the Bosporus, the Euphrates, the Indus, and the Ganges, and has truly traveled the East. I thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chaudhary, for um, giving us a, the, 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 a, a large historical tour into the many episodes that kind of set the stage for uh, contemporary dynamics and contemporary geopolitical dynamics. Um, with that, we turn to uh, uh, Dr. Farooq Soleria. Um, if you could now join us, uh, unmute yourself and turn on your camera. Uh, thank you very much. I hope uh, everybody can hear me. Yes, yes, we can hear you. Okay, great. Uh, last time, I think it was uh, not from my side. Uh, I couldn't unmute myself anyway. Sorry for the disturbance. Thanks a lot and uh, indeed honor to be on this panel. Uh, I would uh, just focus on uh, Pakistan as a case study and uh, I will speak mainly about uh, media, the topic I was supposed to speak. But I will briefly start with the growing influence of Turkey in Pakistan. Uh, last about uh, one decade, all of a sudden, Turkey is an important player on many fronts, actually, uh, mainly economics uh, that usually we look into, uh, culture, most importantly, and politics as well. Economics is not yet a very big front. Turkey is not one of the major uh, trade partners uh, for Pakistan. Uh, the mutual trade is not yet even $1 billion. It is growing, uh, but uh, not really there as compared to China or USA, EU, which are and a couple of Gulf countries, which are the main trade partners. Uh, but this is growing. And there are at least uh, uh, 17 uh, Turkish companies, firms, multinationals, uh, which have invested in Pakistan in such sectors as energy and finance, uh, but most importantly, construction. Construction is the main concern so far, I think it seems for a Turkish bourgeoisie that Dr. Baba was talking about as well. And this very much reflects also the kind of bourgeoisie uh, AKP uh, represents in Turkey. Uh, politically is, I think, much more important because uh, Turkey is trying to uh, assert itself uh, as a sub-imperial country, as a sub rising sub-imperialism at least. And uh, it's uh, the Ottomanization of its uh, foreign policy as well uh, is very much involving Pakistan. And Pakistan, on the other hand, 
is trying to look for some new uh, international allies as well uh, because of its own uh, placing placement and uh, recent political maneuverings where it has alienated itself uh, 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 from some of the Arab countries and perhaps the USA as well. Uh, however, the most important influence can be seen in the cultural uh, field, uh, especially media. Some films have also arrived Pakistani cinemas recently, but they have not been as big hit as some of the television productions in Pakistan. Uh, also tourism is growing, but I'll uh, mainly uh, speak about media. It all started, I would say, in uh, 2012. Uh, there was uh, a Turkish serial called Ishke Mamnu, Forbidden Love, which took Pakistan by surprise. It created all TRP records at the time. It was the most popular TV uh, play in you know, recent Pakistani history of uh, uh, television ratings. Uh, and it has only been surpassed only recently by Artogral. So in last 10 years, the most popular, uh, the, the biggest hit I would say in, uh, in Pakistan have been two Turkish serials. And meantime, there were few more television serials such as uh, Mera Sultan, Sultan uh, the, this television serial about uh, uh, um, King uh, uh, Emperor Suleiman, Qasim Gul, uh, Fatma Gul, sorry, uh, and a couple of more serials. They were also quite popular in Pakistan. Um, and it is also having uh, some sort of uh, impact on uh, Pakistani middle classes, which are increasingly going to Turkey for uh, uh, their holidays, uh, because Turkey for last about 10 years has also become a popular destination. Okay, there are other reasons. It is difficult to get European visas, etc. But also, you know, Pakistani middle class is not very different from uh, this new uh, middle class in uh, Turkey itself, which is very neoliberal. Uh, but also, you know, uh, always ready to be uh, expressing its piety in every possible way. So you can live with neoliberalism of the Erdogan style or Imran Khan style and be very good Muslim at the same time. And um, I think all these, uh, these projections, these cultural, economic, political projections of Turkey in uh, Pakistan, they are very much reflective of its uh, uh, sub-imperial, uh, growing sub-imperial role. Uh, which I won't go into really uh, any big details. I will uh, just uh, focus on uh, television now. Um, and uh, I will try to explain why these Turkish serials have been uh, very popular in Pakistan. I think uh, uh, there are a couple of reasons, at least three reasons that we can look into. Uh, first of all, because of the changing uh, television spectrum in Pakistan, there was this demand for new uh, television content. Pakistan had a state monopoly over a television system until the start of this century. And uh, under the Musharraf dictatorship at the start of this century, uh, there was this liberalization of fair waves. And uh, now we have over 80 channels at least and about 10 of them are uh, dedicated to so-called entertainment. Uh, all of a sudden, therefore, huge demand for new content. Initially, the Pakistani television channels, they bought content from India. Also, because of the historical reasons, ling linguistic proximity, 
uh, also uh, for the fact that Indian films have been historically popular in Pakistan, all these factors and some many common cultural traits. Uh, Indian content was very popular for say, uh, initial 10 to 12 years before Ishke Mamnu. However, there was also uh, all the time a criticism from the right-wing political parties and right-wing press on the Indian content. It was presented as a, a cultural invasion of Pakistan by India. Uh, I think a combination of these factors uh, made few uh, channels think about the uh, Turkish content, hence Ishke Mamnu, which was first aired on a channel called Urdu One, which basically uh, translates, uh, you know, it imports content from different countries and translates into Urdu. It is dubbed into Urdu. And Ishke Mamnu was one of them which became very popular in Pakistan. So this was like the first perhaps uh, demand and supply kind of understanding uh, which brought Turkish content to Pakistan. Uh, then, of course, there was further economic factor. The Turkish content is uh, much more uh, economically uh, feasible and profitable for the Pakistani channels. For instance, one episode of Ishke Mamnu or any other Turkish series would cost a local channel uh, roughly $2,000 to $3,000. And if you are doing a local production, a Pakistani pro television production, it will cost at least three to four times more than the uh, Turkish uh, TV serial per episode. So this was huge cost for uh, Pakistani channels. This also made the Turkish content popular with the bosses at least, not just the uh, uh, viewers. Thirdly, and most importantly, I think it was uh, uh, some, it was the cultural capital of uh, Turkey as my colleague was uh, speaking earlier in, in South Asia and Pakistan, which really helped popularize the Turkish content in Pakistan. Um, first of all, I think uh, the Turkish content was, had a, a sort of novelty about it. It was very, very novel. Uh, Pakistani audiences were used to Hollywood or British content. Uh, both in film and the television, uh, or Indian. This was all of a sudden something very new, very novel. The acting techniques, the production quality, uh, locations. Um, I mean, it was alien, yet very familiar because of the uh, Muslim cultural aspect of it. Uh, it was uh, Western, yet Muslim. So this very interesting dynamics perhaps appeal to, uh, uh, to large sections of the uh, TV audiences here. Secondly, um, the grandeur and the glamor that is there in uh, Turkish soap operas is actually missing in Pakistani soap operas or television serials as we call them. Pakistan is considered one of the good countries. The local pro locally produced television serials have been quite historically popular, still are some of them very popular. Uh, but this, you know, uh, kind of glamor that is there, this big budget kind of uh, drama production is missing in Pakistan. This was perhaps yet uh, another factor which uh, popularized the uh, Turkish content in Pakistan. Thirdly, uh, the Turkish soap opera is able to pursue topics 
which are otherwise taboos in Pakistan. For instance, in Ishq Mamnu, they slightly touch incest, which is perhaps impossible to discuss in a Pakistani television production. Hence, it was digested by the audiences as well. Um, Fatima Gul, it's a story of a rape survivor in a Muslim culture. Okay, there have been films from India where they have shown rape survivor, but that is seen as a sort of alien Hindu culture, even if it's neighborly, but okay, that's another kind of culture. Uh, in fact, it's the other culture. India is otherified in Pakistan. So, okay, you, you accept it. Here you have a sort of uh, Muslim brotherly country and uh, their girl is uh, struggling as a rape survivor. And it went on. There have been attempts to uh, broach sub -topic, such topics on Pakistani serial, uh, screen as well by Pakistani uh, TV drama, but huge hue and cry. And in some cases, such plays had to be shut down after a couple of episodes. And finally, I would say the nostalgia. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, the Pakistani audiences can relate to great Muslim past of Turkey uh, until 80s and 90s, particularly because of the Afghan Jihad. Uh, the past, which was glorified, the great Muslim past was largely Arab Muslim past. Uh, the culture was Arabified. Now there is another glorious past that people have discovered, which actually belongs to Turkey. Uh, so this is, you know, uh, I think the, the last important thing to understand the popularity of Turkey soap operas in Pakistan. I will now, final thing, uh, I will look at the consequences of uh, the Turkish content uh, in Pakistan. Uh, one, it has displaced uh, the Indian soap operas, the Indian cultural uh, productions in Pakistan. It has not, I mean, already because of this new television medium in Pakistan, largely the TV content is being produced locally. The equipment, the rest of the paraphernalia, it's all imported. Pakistan is really a dependent country uh, in terms of media as well. Uh, but uh, whatever content is imported, it is largely from Turkey now. It went down for a while, but with Artugral, it is back. Secondly, uh, it has actually very bad consequences uh, for the Pakistani television production, because uh, when you are importing the content, the local television drama industry uh, is dying down. It's not really that bad yet, but I mean, if it goes on, so the usual uh, impact of imports. So these are the consequences that we can uh, look at very briefly right now. Uh, I will end here and if there will be any questions, I will come back. But just to uh, wrap it all up, I will um, you know, speak about a couple of uh, anecdotal things um, beyond, beyond my topic. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, Turkey was an important country uh, for Pakistan being a Cold War ally, but it was always a brotherly country out there, away, not close to us, culturally, politically, whatever. But as the two colleagues have spoken earlier, with Erdogan kind of factor, now it's a, you know, a new Muslim brotherly country. It is part of us. 
and uh, last few years i have spotted a turkish cultural center in the heart of lahore there are many turkish schools actually run by julan movement now closed down under the pressure of erdogan uh, government and erdogan has emerged one, as one of the most popular global leader in pakistan when he was in pakistan earlier this year uh, received by pakistani prime minister imran khan and they held a joint press conference i almost never agree with imran khan but i agreed perhaps once with him when he said that if there were elections in pakistan and erdogan was contesting he would win hands down so this explains you know the kind of uh, uh, turkish influences on pakistani politics and culture in particular thank you very much thank you uh, so much dr saleria for giving us um, sort of a closer look into the television industry and the dynamics behind it from that that has led to um, this this growing industry of turkish soap operas in 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 pakistan uh, last but not the least uh, if we could turn to uh, dr umer anas uh, to speak about uh, turkey and india ties dr uh, anas if you could unmute yourself Um, and I think uh, the you have a presentation that would be shared by one or somebody from the events team. So, if the events team could you share the screen and uh, Dr. Anas, if you could turn on your ca camera and mic. Yes. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Dr. Amin, and uh, my friends in Middle East Institute there, and. Uh, Uh, all of my friends from India, Pakistan, and, and other countries who are part of this program today. So I think that uh, all my three colleagues have already covered a lot of ground. So uh, I have uh, uh, I have to speak a little, and I have to focus mostly on uh, India-Turkey relations and some parts of the politics of Erdogan, and especially on the. politics of erdogan and i would say that uh, we have to look uh, the kind of transformations which have uh, uh, come into turkish television industry uh, in my presentation also i have shown that india uh, turkey uh, turkish television industry has massively changed and it is not just erdogan right now if you see in 2003 it was a, a drama which was translated in arabic and uh, then in 2009 another drama for example in 2003 the valley of the wolves which was about israeli politics partially it covered that part and israelis were so much angry of that drama if we have to make a story about turkish television uh, industry we have to start it from there because from uh, the valley of the wolves uh, the turkish drama had started making a mixture of politics and uh, entertainment then in 2009 there was another drama it, its the name was gumush or uh, in arabic it was translated as noor i my plus uh, enfield dissertation was on this drama at that time when i was uh, studying it uh, at jawaharlal nehru university in india <clears throat> there were many news that this drama had caused many family disputes and uh, many divorce cases in the arab world because 
in this drama first time the women were shown in uh, in a very uh, empowered picture and uh, the arab women they started demanding from their husbands that you should be have like muhannad the husband of noor so this was uh, a reason of dispute in in the families and when the last episode of this drama was shown on television uh, there are many news uh, in al jazeera in arabia in many other news photos that uh, almost the, the 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 streets of riyadh and cairo were deserted nobody was there most of the women and men they were in house to watch this drama then came another drama bin bir gaje or uh, uh, like alif laila and Uh, there are many other dramas which have been produced and turkey has become a net exporter uh, second largest exporter of uh, dramas in the global television uh, industry after the united states and if you see the night uh, in netflix and uh, other platform digital platforms you you can find so many turkish programs there and uh, not just historical dramas but also uh, thrillers actions and uh, romance and uh, psychological dramas are also getting attention in this uh, uh, in this uh, 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 industry and uh, i was surprised to see that these psychological dramas are extremely powerful extremely powerful and sometimes they are extremely uh, dark and depressing so uh, uh, it is very difficult to watch them they are so strong and so stressing but it shows that the turkish drama uh, industry and television industry is progressing very much and storytelling is going to uh, be in uh, very perfection uh, as in in case of uh, te this television drama the uh, uh, ertuğrul drama you can see at least two features the first feature is that they have a, they have the art of perfect storytelling for television audience they have all elements of uh, politics religion tribalism history sufism music chivalry feminism romance suspense action so everything is there and plus they have market islam by market islam i would like to say that they have they when when you uh, know that your audience are in demand of some images uh, which should be related to islam and uh, muslimness or about identity you can produce some other some 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 kind of dramas for these uh, uh, hungry audiences if you see global muslim right now after 9/11 uh, muslims around the world they have been projected depicted as uh, terrorist extremist bad and in in all negative pictures so very apologetic muslim uh, audience has uh, developed since then all over the world in indian television in pakistani uh, i should also say uh, in 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 in, the, in most of the western countries muslims have been uh, pictured in a very negative uh, way so when ertuğrul came it was a an apologetic muslim it was uh, the story was told in a very perfect way so it convinced the muslim audiences everywhere at the same time the 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 professional part of the, of the or the technical part of the picture of movie making or drama making was so perfect that if you if you read the the the, the comments by indian i get what you TV, mean just now you say you can if you can, if you if you see some of the comments made by indian commentators they have so praised 
the the art of making this drama they 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 were surprised that uh, turkey has uh, skills to produce so powerful dramas from technical point of view uh, they did not agree with the politics of drama the messages of drama but they indeed they praised the art of uh, uh, making such uh, powerful uh, dramas so that is also part of of that uh, about market islam i would also say that uh, when you mix market and religion you can you can produce some different stories uh, which can be sold in uh, different markets which are influenced by by uh, religion uh, for example in india also in these days you can see that there are uh, a, a new genre which is coming about retelling the indian history according to religious sentiments we can call it the sentiment of hindutva sentiment of uh, uh, hindu religion but you can see that there is a large audience which wants which want to listen these stories and there is a, a strong bollywood which is ready to make and produce these uh, uh, things and sometimes these things are creating a kind of discontent so there was a drama there was a movie which was made about afghanistan and then afghanistan officials the president and other foreign ministry officials they made an objection to indian foreign ministry that such dramas are being made and uh, they can uh, affect uh, or impact on uh, india afghanistan relations so uh, when market and religion is going to be mixed you can expect such kind of dramas coming from uh, any industry let's come to the uh, second part of my uh, my discussion on turkey india uh, uh, turkey india relations and especially i would like to cover um, Uh, turkey's india outlook i i am uh, uh, a book which i have edited on turkey's asia relations is uh, going to come out from palgrave this later this year hopefully uh, i have covered a lot of ground on uh, turkey's asia relations especially with pakistan india china bangladesh and other countries during this work i i, ha- I have uh, worked a lot on uh, archival materials in in ankara and uh, archival materials in india as well so for, on the basis of these uh, uh, my previous studies i would uh, make a few important remarks on uh, the state of india turkey relations or in turkey uh, south asia relations uh, relations at large uh, for, uh, we have to see there are four uh, main outlooks which are uh, in use in turkish foreign policy first is historical outlook Uh, which is made by the british uh, russia and ottoman tri- uh, triangle of competition uh, during the imperial time so russia was appearing as a major threat uh, for the british uh, indian uh, uh, government and turkey or the ottoman empire at that time was seen as an important ally of the british uh, imperialism to stop uh, the reach of uh, 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 uh russia from indian borders so if you see the literature russia was a threat at that time second anti colonial outlook came when uh, the khilafat movement started and the uh, uh, ottomans supported indian uh, uh, indian revolutionaries and they also helped the, the the establishment of the first indian government in exile in kabul uh, which was led by raja mahendra singh uh in uh, uh, uh so in 1915 so after that kemalists they came and they also continued the support of indian independence uh, uh, fighters and they they he, he remained in support of a modern secular uh, india in that sense 
Then the Cold War outlook, which uh, uh, in which Turkey became a formal part of the uh, Western Alliance, and since then uh, it is a, a, a part of uh, Western security architecture. And in the post Cold War era, uh, Turkey failed to evolve uh, a, a working uh, uh, perspective for uh, most of South Asia uh, uh, relations. Uh, if you see that uh, uh, Turkey has been uh, remaining disconnected from South Asia for a very long time. And even, even in the Cold War time, the relations with Pakistan were mostly uh, transactional and they did not go beyond security cooperation. They did never uh, uh, go into the domain of economics and culture and uh, other cooperation. Uh, while with India also their relations remained uh, uh, transactional, but in the post-Cold War period, you can see that India-Turkey relations have improved at least in economic uh, dom domain. So trade is uh, much better there. India is the second largest partner uh, of Turkey after China. And uh, uh, now Bangladesh is becoming the third largest partner uh, of Turkey in terms of trade. The one of the most important problem with uh, Turkey-South Asia relations is that the Turkey does not have that kind of economic competitiveness uh, to be with these countries. Uh, for example, if you see Indian export is largely uh, India has a very very large uh, knowledge-based export material. Uh, software industry is uh, becoming large and large. The computer industry, IT industry overall has expanded uh, uh, exponentially in India. But if you see the Turkish exports, they still, uh, they have not transformed their economy in, into that domain. So uh, India-Turkey cooperation has not come into this field. And so uh, Turkey is not in position to receive more exports from these countries. And Turkey has to stop to, uh, to, uh, to a point where it, it cannot bridge the trade deficit between uh, Turkey and Asia. And especially uh, the trade deficit between Turkey and China is becoming a burden on Turkish economy. And someday there will come a point where Turkey would demand that there should be some, uh, some, some mechanism to bridge these gaps. And with the India as well, these things are going on. With Bangladesh, their, their trade is going on with some parity. Uh, with Pakistan, it has not even started. And Pakistan does not have much to offer in, in terms of trade and economy. To, to Turkey. So uh, if you see the possibility of uh, Pakistan and Turkey relations going up, is it still uh, uh, very much in, uh, in uh, I, I would say uh, the picture is not very good. Uh, at the same time, Pakistan is, uh, is still uh, to decide whether uh, it has to go with, uh, with, with the Persian Gulf uh, or the uh, Saudi Arabia or with Turkey. So when, whenever there is a strong pressure on Pakistan, to choose between Turkey and Saudi Arabia, Pakistan will choose and uh, has to choose uh, uh, for many reasons, Saudi Arabia over Turkey. So these, uh, there are some opportunities which uh, uh, Turkey is exploiting in its, uh, uh, sorry, uh, in its relations with Asian countries. Uh, for the first opportunity is that uh, uh, in Turkish uh, foreign policy discourse, you will see, you, you, you find that West is, the West is disintegrating. The West, West is changing. The West is no longer a West. France is trying to have its unilateral position in the world. Britain wants to be more global. 
and Italy wants to have its own feature. Other countries like Germany and other uh, Western allies, they, they want to Im improve their unilateral profile. So they say, why, we, why should we expect from Turkey to remain loyal to the West at the time when all individual NATO members are building their own profile in Asia and they are, they are, they are, they are having good relations with China, India, and all other countries. For example, the US-China relations are economic relations have been exemplary even in the time of conflicts. So alone Turkey should not uh, take the burden of uh, being a Western country. So uh, Turkey should switch or should diversify from the West-centric foreign policy to some other parts and should have relations with other countries. So this is one logic which is working in uh, uh, Turkish foreign policy thinking. At the same time, there is serious uh, trust deficit between the United States, uh, overall the Western uh, bloc and Turkey, especially what happened in Syria. Uh, it is like uh, most of the Western countries, they demanded Turkey to play a bigger role in Syria. And when Turkey went inside Syria, all of them left alone and they started working uh, on a different agenda by supporting uh, uh, a Kurdish group which wanted to create a state inside Syria. So there's huge, very huge trust deficit between the West and Turkey. So Turkey is working on, uh, have, have to do something about it. Then there is another third uh, aspect on which Turkey is working very much. That is uh, experience of Erdogan. Erdogan has achieved so much experience in dealing with uh, great countries like Russia, China, and uh, from the diplomacy of Astana process, he has learned a lot. And uh, especially in conflict uh, resolution mechanism, uh, the way he has worked in, in Russia, in, in, in Syria and in Nagorno-Karabakh, it has given him a lot of diplomatic uh, experience, a lot of strategic experience. So he, he uh, uh, in this way, he has learned how to deal with non-Western uh, great powers, and he is working on these uh, uh, experiences uh, more. Apart from that, humanitarian uh, diplomacy is also very strong. And then the most important thing which Erdogan has uh, and should be credited for that is the rise of defense industry in Turkey, and especially the popularity of drone, which uh, whose performance has been tested in Libya, in Nagorno-Karabakh, and in Syria. So uh, Turkey is uh, having in hand something uh, with which Turkey can expand its relations beyond the, uh, beyond the West. Now, the challenge with India relations is that, the first challenge in my personal opinion is that, uh, if, you, if you see the Turkish strategic community and policy community here in Ankara or Istanbul, uh, I don't see uh, much interest about uh, South Asia per se. Doctor, unless don't we're find about, it, sorry, Dr. Anas, we're about ending time. So if you could just wrap up. Uh, yeah, I, I, will, I will just uh, conclude in uh, two, three minutes. So I don't see enough expertise in about India, about Pakistan, about Bangladesh. Uh, you cannot find even a single expert of uh, Indian politics or uh, Pakistani politics or Bangladeshi politics in Ankara or in Istanbul. So there's not much interest in learning about the region. And there is a huge knowledge gap uh, about South Asia, which Turkey must cover. At the same time, this, this gap is also in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. I cannot see any 
Bangladeshi or Pakistani uh, expert on uh, contemporary politics of Turkey. You can find many Pakistani and Indian experts about Ottoman time and about the uh, Kemalist time, but not about the contemporary politics. So this is a knowledge gap which is there. Second, Kashmir is a, is a major issue uh, on which India and Pakistan, India and Turkey have huge differences. And Turkey has to do a lot to, uh, to, to convince India what exactly does it want from its Kashmir activism or Kashmir uh, diplomacy of Kashmir. So uh, as long as there is no uh, confidence build, building on this issue, I think that relations between the two countries are going to be uh, uh, in, 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 in a state of confusion. Then the third question is about technology transfer. And uh, uh, there are many issues on which Turkey and India can cooperate, but they are, they, they, they are reluctant to transfer technology and transfer, transfer the experiences which they have. The opportunities which I see between India and Turkey is that uh, they have shared uh, perspectives on Afghanistan. They have shared perspective on China's aggressive expansion in the world. And uh, the third most important aspect is that uh, Turkey is going to remain part of the Western security arch architecture. Turkey is not going to leave NATO. Turkey is not going to leave its European ambitions and Turkey is going to remain there. So Turkey's, uh, Turkey's uh, 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 association with the West is going to there, which is going to help India in terms of uh, uh, not, uh, not in terms of only democratic politics, but also to contain uh, China and China's expanding influence all over the, uh, uh, the region. So these are some aspects on which Turkey and India can cooperate and can build upon. So uh, these are a few uh, remarks which I wanted to make on the issue of uh, India and uh, Turkey relations, apart from the uh, politics of Erdogan. So I will stop here. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And I will see uh, what I can uh, talk on in, during question and answer. No, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anas, for this. Uh, you know, you know, this is a it's, a it's a vast topic, sort of giving us a you know brief overview, um, and hopefully wetting the appetite for our audience to ask further questions. Uh, we will now turn directly to the question and answer session. If anyone has uh, any questions, uh, I would prefer that if you could send it to the MEI events team, and they will forward it to me and. Well, I can then ask ask the speakers about it, or if you wish, uh, you uh, actually uh, you can you can raise your hand and ask directly as well. Um, so uh, while while the audience uh, kind of you know like percolate the questions percolate and the discussions percolate, um, I want to start our discussion by perhaps uh, talking about uh, the the you know the what was at the core of even the call for, for putting this together in, um, in terms of, of, of looking at contemporary relationships in light of a longer history. Uh, Dr. Chaudhary, perhaps you highlighted that there's these separate, several stages to this history, uh, uh, be it the, 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 the 1920s post-World uh, War I or interwar era with the Khilafat movement and then the Hijrat, or the Sito and the Sento era, or even earlier, if you go earlier with the Mughals and the Ottoman um, Empire. Uh, Dr. Adhiyo suggested that, that there was, uh, that this long history gives us a diverse or gives people a diverse platform 
to choose from informing their own political agenda or forming their own sort of perspective on 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 uh, on these ties. So be it it can at the same time be modern and at the same time it can be Islamic. Um, Dr. Larry, I think you touched on on this as well. So I'm wondering um, if we could uh, if 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 uh, you know me perhaps starting with uh, Dr. Chaudhry, um, sort of uh, more abstract uh, thoughts on what role does this his, this sort of diverse history with multiple sort of layered relation give us in forging these relations? Well, okay, uh, thank you. Uh, it's absolutely true. I mean, the relations between uh, Turkey, uh, or Tur Turkic culture and, and the subcontinent, Indian subcontinent have been so varied and so diverse that you can touch upon one or the other element in a very broad spectrum and build the linkages that you'd want to. As I have said that, Almost simultaneously during, uh, during the uh, pre-partition days, uh, both the Kemalist uh, uh, position as well as the pro-Caliphate uh, Abdul Majid position were very popular among uh, the, uh, the South Asian Muslims. And I've said that, you see, while on the one hand, even in Calcutta, uh, someone like uh, uh, Amir Ali was pleading for the caliphate to be in position, and, and the poet uh, Nazrul Islam was singing paeans of praise to uh, Kamal Pasha and Anwar Bey. So, so that's it. Right now, for instance, uh, there is, it is uh, to the interest. It, uh, you see, societies like ours, I and mean, we like to believe, we like to believe that we, uh, we are secular in some ways, and we would like to keep religion a little distinct from politics. But we are certainly conscious and about the kind of influence that religion as an ideology would have on our population. And Turkey is a bit of a safe bet in many ways. It's moderate, it's a moderate Sunni belief pattern. Uh, it's a member of NATO. Uh, in many ways, intellectually, uh, we also link to the West. Uh, 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 no matter what. So at the same time, we are proud of our own identity, etc. So in many ways, Turkey fits the bill. You see, so that's it. You can really pick on what elements that you want to correspond to in the very broad spectrum of, uh, of Turkish civilization and Indian civilization. And they have met across uh, at many points uh, throughout history as it does now. Thank you. If any of the other speakers, would you like to add in any, any point about sort of uh, like how history, how, how this diverse history perhaps lends itself to be utilized for whatever ends seem necessary at that time? What I would like to say here, if uh, Farouk Slaria would let me, um, I have been reading for a while about the Kemalist reforms um, in the last couple of years, how they try to diversify themselves or maybe detach themselves from the Ottoman past. Here in Turkey, one of the political rhetorics uh, uh, perhaps uh, gradually becoming heavier is that uh, the Kemalist reform period was some sort of a a break from the Ottoman past. So when we are talking about the Turkish historical patterns, starting from the Ottoman background, stepping into the Kemalist reforms, and then stepping into Erdogan's paradigms, 
or let me put it in the other way, aims, we see there is a bit of a fluctuation. The way that uh, Dr. Chaudhry uh, told us about uh, the, how, the, how Turkey was seen in the Middle East and also in South Asia and Asia was a result of this fluctuation. With the Kemalist reform starting from the 1920s, when we come to 2007, maybe, it's a big period for a young republic like Turkey. Turkey's attention towards non-Western world was limited. And it's a two-way street. Non-Western world's uh, perception towards Turkey was also limited. Turkey's, Turkey was known, but as a country which is quite pro-Western. And with this type of a fluctuation, let me put it in this way, uh, with the increase of a non-Western world awareness, uh, now Turkey is more well-known in the non-Western world and uh, more maybe more welcomed. Uh, think about the Turkish position in Bandung conference. Uh, Turkey, the founders of Turkey, the revolutionaries of the Turkish Republic were the main topics, the main, some of the motivations behind the formation of the non-aligned movement. But when the actual representatives of Turkey went to the Bandung conference, they were in the back burner, somewhere back there. Nowhere, no one really cared about their position and what they would like to say. With Erdogan's policies, we see there is a change. So the fluctuation was like that, maybe, regarding Turkey's relations with, with Asia. Let me put it in a general way. The problem is that there is like multiple tiers, as I try to conceptualize. And so far, we have been mostly talking about the cultural element. The cultural element is like a door to open, but what you would like to find behind that door, especially for the Erdogan regime, is not something cultural. Erdogan regime is looking for something more tangible. Okay. And that is more about the economic gains and the financial gains. <laughs> now we are stepping into, as the Turks, stepping into some sort of a difficult terrain. Because when you are trying to achieve some economic gains, you need to be aware of a significant element, which is competitiveness. The competitiveness in order to be a part of Asia is a difficult one to deal with for the Turkish administrators. Competitiveness in any sense, including the military sense. Like think about the Russian outlook towards South Asia particularly, let's say, Afghanistan. Turkey stepped into there, like militarily, if it gets into a problem with Russia, how compatible or how competitive, competitive, Turkey's uh, military forces or military arsenal would be against the Russians. We faced it as the Turks in Syria. So the starting is good. I have been hearing about how popular the Turkish soap operas, how popular the Turkish media products, their productivity, people's receptiveness and all that in the region. But that's not what Turkey has been expecting in the last decade. The expectation is different. It's a good startup 
to have that popular cultural popularity in those regions, but that's not what the Turkey was expecting. It's a different expectation Turkey has been. And this is the linkage that whether we're gonna develop that type of an image to deal with the competitiveness in the region and then become a, maybe a player in the region. Turkey is not that much of a player in the sense that is expectations for today. Thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Anas, did you have your hand up? Would you like to join? Yeah, um, I would like to Adam? add uh, a very brief remark on this. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the major problem in, uh, uh, on literature which is available on uh, uh, Turkey and Asia relations, uh, Turkey-India, Turkey-Pakistan relations, uh, uh, is that uh, there is a strong religious uh, framework in which uh, Ottoman history or Ottoman politics has been defined. The politics of empire at that time, uh, for example, it is not necessary that we uh, can define the behavior of the British empire from the perspective of Christianity. Even though the ruler of the British Empire and a predominant, almost 99% ruling elites were uh, Christians, but we cannot see the element of religious religion uh, being used in defining the history of uh, British Empire. But in case of Ottoman Empire, especially in South Asia, even Muslims, they wanted to see Ottoman Empire as the representative of Islam and Muslims. And they wanted to see the Ottoman Empire from the religious perspective very well, very much. On the other hand, how Ottoman Empire was defining itself was different. Uh, for example, in 1839, when the first uh, Tanzimat period happened and the, many good reforms were uh, taken, there was a discussion in the British uh, parliament and they were appreciating that how Ottoman Empire is becoming a safe place for Christianity. And they, then they were comparing Ottoman Empire with Russia. That Christians are being suppressed in Russia, but they are much safe in the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire did not try to define itself strictly in religious terms, but many in, uh, in between, uh, especially the South Asian politics was of uh, the kind which needed some religious framework. And then it came. Even today, the biggest problem of Turkey is that they have to overcome this difference of religiosity or religion in their politics, whether their politics is driven by religion or not. So if it is driven by religion, then it has to face the big question of 1947, uh, uh, which we say uh, because of Islam or because of Muslims, uh, India, Indian subcontinent was divided into India and Pakistan. So the bitter history of 1947 partition, it will haunt the Ottoman history as well. So for Turkey, it is good that they remain uh, and they define themselves uh, uh, beyond the religious uh, uh, references, which is unfortunately being done from both sides. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Soleria. Would you like to join in too? Did you? Uh, thank you very much. I just need two minutes. Uh, I'll depart from my basic topic because of the overall, uh, you know, contributions. Uh, I want you to bring a couple of more things. Very briefly, I mean, it seems 
Turkey has been given a very good image all the time today. Uh, and while we are talking about Turkey and Erdogan, we should not forget Kurdish question either. We should not forget the victims of the drone, Turkish drones. To uh, drone is nothing to glorify. Um, but again, mainly I will focus on the media productions. I think when market and Islam mix, they, it's a terrible mix. It's nothing to glorify. Artugral is nothing to glorify. There were other sides of Artugral as well, uh, especially in the context of Muslim world, we need to look into the question of religious minorities. It was not popular among the religious minorities. Uh, at least Pakistani Christians silently protested. They can't protest really. Um, Artugral contributed to jihadi message. Uh, it's it's not just you know uh, and just another soap opera. Um, we we need to be very careful about uh, such productions, especially if we are discussing them in academic settings. Um, and lastly, uh, I would say near because audiences are welcoming something or something is popular among audiences is not a justification for uh, any play. Also, it's no justification if India has been doing or is doing X, Y, Z, hence Turkey is also justified in doing X, Y, Z. If Hindutva films are problematic, Artugral is also problematic. Uh, this is what I wanted to briefly say. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, if I could also like ask perhaps the, 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 the panel more broadly, it seems to me that that what's become increasingly clear or sort of agreement across the board is 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 the one-sidedness of it's all perhaps or sort of the mismatch in the aspirations and the of from both sides where turkey it seems is still more invested in gaining some kind of political or economic ends uh, but the other side is 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 more invested still in 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 seeing in Turkey, a more ideological actor, perhaps a more uh, cultural, culture, or more Islamic actor. Uh, so is this, is, and, and, and this is not just in the present, but we see sort of elements of this in the 1920s as well with the, with the Khilafat movement, which largely remained a one-sided affair. Um, so are we, are, we, are we sort of destined to, be, to have this kind of, you know, mismatch dynamics in the future or is there some way that there that, that this that there can be a bridge between the two should i make some yeah yeah you can start yeah thank you uh, one of the most uh, problematic uh, uh, way of uh, talking about turkey is is that if you see the turkish foreign policy was set was uh, uh, established much before the most of the Asian countries became nation states. Turkey became a nation state from the Ottoman Empire right in 1920s. And <coughs> state politics were, were uh, completely uh, formalized and a nation building was, uh, there was no nation building at all. R rather, it was continuation of the Ottoman state in a reduced territory indeed. Unlike Asian countries, Asian countries were still struggling for, power, for, for their independence. And by 1940s, 1945, 46, 47 onwards, they started becoming independent. And then they started 
a process of nation building, a state building process. And another problem is in Turkish, uh, in, in studying Turkey uh, is that, for example, we use this term jihadist or uh, minorities or concepts like this. If we go back into the, in, in, during the, the Erdogan's time, it was not a period of nation state. It was a time of tribalism, imperialism, and you, you don't uh, find the word like minorities in that, uh, uh, in that time's literature. And if you see the history of Ottomans, it is quite interesting that, uh, for example, uh, I have seen many uh, uh, write-ups on the conquest of, uh, of uh, Istanbul. The relation between Ottoman uh, elites and the Istanbul-based uh, Christians at that time were so uh, intertwined that <clears throat> many Ottoman <clears throat> sultans, <clears throat> sorry, they married with uh, Christians of uh, the girls of palace. And they, they, they had a lot of relations, personal relations with, the, with Istanbul even before the conquest of, of Istanbul. So the tension between Christianity and Islam at that time has been studied now after in, 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 the, in the context of clash of civilization. So now we are recreating a history which may not exist at that time. So relation between Christians and Ottomans are different completely from what we have come to know today. So I would say that we have to be very careful in using the terms like jihadist for Erdogan now after 1000 years or uh, terminologies like, like minorities because minorities must be in a nation state. If there is no nation state, we cannot imagine of minorities. And that is why uh, the concept of minorities become more complicated when it comes into, the, in, in today's modern context. That said, uh, one brief remark I would like to make. Uh, more than Turkey wants to project itself as a leader of Islamic world. I have seen the curiosity among the Muslims in India and Pakistan. They want to see Erdogan more as a caliph than Erdogan himself wants to see him, himself as a caliph. I, I have re read uh, many uh, articles uh, coming from uh, Urdu speaking people in India and Pakistan. They want to see Turkey uh, at the top of Islamic world, everything. But if you see it in Turkey, you don't find even among the elites of AK party, even among the elites of AK party, you don't find such discourses. So they, they are not talking in these terms. Religion in Erdogan's speeches or his uh, elite advisors' speeches, you don't find enough of uh, religiosity there. Rather, the religious people in Turkey who are conservative, you can see some kind of uh, discontent among them that Erdogan is no longer that much religious. Is become becoming more and more nationalist. So I think that we we have to refrain from imposing uh, something on uh, which may not exist, and that is where uh, the problem of language comes. Most of the uh, 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 Turkey is a difficult language, and uh, most of the Turkish uh, uh, the people who are uh, uh, using the terminologies, for example, new Ottoman Turkey is trying to impose or bring new Ottomanism even without using it in right that, uh, uh, context. So uh, there is a huge knowledge gap uh, about Turkey that is leading to uh, uh, out of context uh, discussions. 
And uh, when I say uh, market Islam, I, I use the, this, uh, th this because I see Turkey as a uh, completely uh, Western nation state, which is run by the logic of market, which is run by the logic of uh, nation state and by the logic of uh, uh, market dynamics. So Erdogan has to function within these limitations and he has to create uh, a support base for himself and create a, a, a I should say, in Marxist system, a superstructure for himself to stay in power and to create a perception industry for himself. So he's using all these things. There is no judgment of good and bad, but the logic of nation state and democracy and capitalism is that we have to create a system of perception and politics uh, along. No, thank you. Uh, Dr. Wa, would you like to also sort of add in to uh, this issue of mismatch, are we sort of destined to see, um, you know, uh, uh, as Dr. Anas also said that, you know, that with Erdogan being stuck in the in his geo-economic frame or sort of in the market, in the pressures of the market, while South Asian uh, states sort of put, you know, aspire them to be, or sort of like, like push them to be more um, sort of ideological, religious, uh, whatever you would like to call it. Uh, is there a way out of this mismatch or are we sort of stuck with it? I'm guessing that the question is uh, is for me. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, two, two points that I would like to mention uh, for your question. Firstly, if I didn't hear it correctly, if I heard it correctly, Ömer uh, Anna said that that was not a nation-building process in the 1920s after the Ottomans. I have to say that I'm, I disagree because since uh, Mustafa Kemal's step on Samsun, that was all his aim to create a nation, a Turkish nation, Türklük, Türkçülük, which is like Turkishness. That's all about his aim. All of his reforms and all that try to settle on this legacy. Today, when Erdogan is uh, collaborating with the Nationalist Party in Turkey, MHP, uh, people say that that's the reason why he is acting in a more nationalist sense. But the reason is actually that legacy. Nationalism, the Turkic nationalism in Turkey, has been always an indispensable part of the Turkish nationhood and nation building. Jihadism, any sort of religious uh, components in the early 1920s were not actually, were bypassed, pushed aside from this uh, nation building. Turkishness, which was a little bit of a fiction a bit of an artificial understanding in the nation building injected into the nation. Ottomans were a multi-ethnic uh, empire and Mustafa Kemal tried to change it into a Turkic nation state. So if I heard it correctly from Ömer, uh, he said that there was no nation building, everything was about it. The, the reforms were all about it. and today, even in Ertuğrul, I'm, I wasn't a very keen watcher of Ertuğrul, but as far as I can remember from his fragments and stuff, Ertuğrul is something very Turkic, and Islam is kind of like following it. 
That's the first legacy. Second legacy is about the mismatch. The second legacy of the 1920s, which is still there, is Turkey's pro-Western attitude. Strategic building, alliance systems, uh, foreign policy making, educational system is Western. And it is not that easy to shift it into a non-Western system because it is always working in the background. A one specific example is a very current one, which is Afghanistan. We know that uh, from the statements of the uh, US officials, which I copied and pasted into mine in Afghanistan, US was not unhappy uh, about Turkey's positioning in in Afghanistan, for example, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that Turkey, an important NATO ally and an invaluable partner in the region, and US wants Turkey to continue playing a role in Afghanistan, Turkey cannot completely detach itself from the West. It, the relations could be strained, which were in the last decade, but Turkey cannot completely detach itself from the NATO and the EU perspectives and all that and engage itself to the East. I don't think East wants that either. And Turkey in that type of a bridging understanding would be actually more useful for these two parts of the world, okay? So these two legacies are still determining Erdogan's foreign policy. Yes, uh, geoeconomics is very important but geoeconomics is very important at the same time could only be useful if you can bear the competitiveness in the region. If you're a competitive player in the region, then you can use banned geoeconomics. Although we would like to use it, I think because of the great power game and the balance of power in the region, I know I'm talking a bit of a geopolitical point of view, Turkey is still a little bit, it's a bit, far reach, cannot really reach that competitiveness, that power. That would create that mismatch in today's foreign policy applications. Thank you. Um, Dr. Chaudhry, if you could, if you, if you would want to add in, or perhaps even... Uh, well, uh, 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 very briefly, very yeah. briefly, if I may. A uh, very interesting discussion. <clears throat> you see, the thing about uh, Turkey, in my experience, it's, it's, it's all about perceptions. Now, it's not what Turkey really is about, but what you like Turkey to be about. I just followed what uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Baba was saying about Turkey being a European thing. I've been milieus like, uh, like in Geneva, when Turkey was negotiating European Union membership, all the Muslim Islamic countries were supporting Turkey in its bid for the membership of the European Union because Turkey would be the conduit in some ways. So Turkey is a bit like the elephant, I mean, uh, and the Indian blind man. I mean, you know, it's, it's like you, when you touch the elephant, if you touch the tusk, it is smooth. If you touch the tail, it gives you a different feeling. So Turkey is a bit like, uh, uh, to us, the seven blind men or whatever, the rest of the world, Turkey is a bit like that kind of elephant. And it's a, <clears throat> my judgment, I'm a political realist, it's a comfortable relationship. I mean, it's a bit like motherhood. I mean, no one really is against Turkey, you see? Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, unless you're a Bulgarian during the, during the uh, Kamalist period. 
So you see, it's a comfortable relationship which everyone would like to have, and that was uh, that is would be my point in in, in building a, a, a relationship with Turkey. And you can find elements in, in all of us which have common elements in Turkey, and you can relate to them. Yes, the fact that it is European is appealing to our uh, elites. The fact that it's even even Kemalist, I mean, our army, for instance, is still very much in, in, in of a Kemalist mode. So all that we borrow from Turkey, uh, we see Turkey in different perspectives. It may really be that or it may not be that. I mean, you know, in Singapore, there were, in 1917, there were British troops, Indian British troops, who refused to fight for the, for the, for the British and were actually executed in mutiny here. So, you know, it, it sometimes presents us with all kinds of different challenges, but uh, it has always been like that. And uh, this will continue like that, I suppose, into the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we're about running out of time. Uh, I'm wondering if anyone would, I mean, since Afghanistan is sort of the hot topic, right? if anyone would want to add um, sort of brief comments about how they see the um, sort of developmental projects in Afghanistan shaping the relationship between Turkey and South Asia. Um, sort of anyone from the panel, if they would want to address it. I mean, we have a couple of minutes. Um, uh, can I comment for a bit on this, Afghanistan? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, uh, uh, about three, four years ago, uh, a, a Pakistani colleague, uh, uh, Mr. Javed Barki, was a finance minister of Pakistan. Myself and Riaz Hassan, a sociolo sociologist from Australia, had written a book on Afghanistan, The Next Steps. And there, in the final chapter, we had foreseen a very important role for Turkey. Uh, those days, uh, this was five years ago, we thought what would be needed when, it, when the transfer takes place. We did not see it in this way that you know, the Taliban would take over completely. We thought Taliban would have a major role. Uh, we, we thought Turkey, uh, as uh, Turkish troops, for instance, as uh, peacekeepers, the kind of role that uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, et cetera, have played the rest of the world, as peacekeepers, uh, even control of certain uh, 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 infrastructural units. I mean. Later on, remember the airport thing came up. We thought it would be good for Turkey to take that up. And we thought Turkey would be acceptable. And uh, during our little bit of research, whatever we did for the book, we came to the conclusion that was the case, whether it was the Taliban. And uh, uh, we have negotiated directly with the Taliban in Bangladesh even uh, during uh, our period in government, which is 2007 to 2009, were receptive. To, to the, uh, to the uh, and as was the Karzai government uh, to Turkey. So therein also I thought, uh, I perceived a kind of uh, 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 acceptance on all sides. I don't know how it will play out in the future, but I still believe that Turkey would have uh, and should have an important role in Afghanistan, even to the, uh, at this time. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, we are unfortunately out of time now. So I'd like to uh, again thank all our um, uh, panel members for joining us today and sort of enlightening us with your with our uh, with your thoughts and sort of this heated discussion. Uh, so thank you everyone for joining us today and thank you to all the audience for also tuning in. Please uh, keep in touch with both uh, ISAF and MEI events and hope to see you guys in the near future. Thank you everyone. Thank you.